0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: Colonies make make a lasting impression on the places and peoples they consume. That's a masterful understatement. This happens in all sorts of ways, but let's look at the buildings. Uh, Here's a quote from our guest writing on the built works of the British Empire. Architectural styles that might otherwise be firmly associated with Surrey, the West Midlands or Central Scotland were faithfully reproduced in the places where British people aimed to build a replica of their society on the waste they'd made of somebody else's in the deserts of Australia, the grasslands of South Africa, in the tundra of Canada, in the volcanic hills of New Zealand. Uh, the book in question from which that quote comes is "Artificial Islands: Adventures in the Dominions," and the author is architecture critic, writer, and o- occasional visitor to this program, Owen Hathley. Owen, welcome. Hello. It, it turns out that the the expression "empire building" is is particularly well chosen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you've got to you, you've got to have the edifices to uh, stand in ruins after you're gone, haven't you?
1: Well, indeed. And the British Empire, which is the, the case in point in, in, in your book, those ruins took a, a, a particular form and had, had a particular statement to make in the, in these places?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the kind of first kind of 50 years or so of it, a lot of it is about, I suppose, a sort of process of reassurance in a lot of ways. You've taken people a very, very, very long way and you know, if you can kind of create this fairly kind of convincing impression of, of, of where they've come from, you know, the, the distance and the alienation and so forth that comes from that lessens quite a bit. And you have this sort of familiarity, and that's a big part of it. But there's also a part of it that's about statements of power that is, uh, and the, the two of these kind of work together quite a lot.
1: And, and the point you make too is, though, the entire inappropriateness in terms of climate, geography, and and culture, of those those buildings and and the the, the structures in which they are introduced into these places.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can see that especially with sort of Gothic architecture, you know, an, an architecture which is really sort of developed in, you know, in Northern Europe in the Middle Ages, and really identified with with a specific bit of that continent then becomes sort of you know reproduced in subtropical climates, which is you know quite a strange thing to do. but of course in other things like housing quite quickly, there's a process of adaptation as well. so there's this kind of odd thing going on where in a city like Melbourne for instance, you know the sort, of, the sort of central grid is extremely kind of Anglo-scottish and then outside of that you have these kind of prefabricated, Verandas and screens and so on that actually do acknowledge the fact that you're not in Glasgow. Let's
1: go to the the book because this is a an extraordinary peregrination uh, across several of the the outposts of of the British Empire. Just the, the idea for this to begin, how how was this formed?
0: Um, there's all sorts of reasons, but one of the things that really kind of got me to actually kind of write it because it had sat. Some sort of version of it had sat half finished for a few years and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then the thing was like, ah, now I have a <laughs> way in, was a load of text written on his blog by the now kind of slightly forgotten and disgraced spin doctor Dominic Cummings, <laughs> who I'm not sure if if, if if listeners will know him, but he was one of the, he was kind of the eminence grease behind Brexit and behind Boris Johnson's um, election campaign in 2019. And he was very keen on a kind of insisting on talking about Australia and Canada and New Zealand as much as possible in propaganda for Brexit in particular, not just in the kind of idea of, you know, an Australian style immigration system, which people interpreted in Britain to mean an immigration system that's basically, you know, like Australia had in the 50s, a kind of white Australia policy type Mm. immigration system, which actually doesn't bear much relation to the actually existing Australian immigration system. Um, And also the idea of having kind of trade deals with our brothers in in these countries rather than the actual neighbours that we have. And this was considered by Cummings to kind of go to the heart of the kind of elderly voters that he was trying to kind of, um, he was trying to court and their idea of the world and their idea of of, of their place within it, that places such as Australia and New Zealand and Canada had a really important part in their psychodrama, let's say, um, which... I was quite surprised by, and but it seemed very, very effective. Which is only,
1: of course, one part of the equation. I mean, that that does not um, acknowledge uh, feelings on the other part of that that post-colonial divide.
0: Right. So it's it's got this very odd idea about what those three countries actually are and what they, how they might feel about us, <laughs> which is generally I find a degree of indifference. Not hostility, which I think you'd get in the Republic of Ireland or, 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 you know, bits of the US, but just a kind of indifference. There's a history there, but the idea that anyone in those countries, apart from, you know, real kind of right-wing fringe, are are, are clamouring to go back into a union with us is a bit bizarre. I mean, that kind of thing about immigration systems is a really interesting point. I think there's still an idea among British people of a certain age of Australia as a white man's country. And they have this very 1950s idea about what sort of a country it is. And, of course, you go to, you know, a a city like Melbourne or Sydney and and they're as many ways as multicultural as London, which is very much not, you know, they're the exact opposite of what these people are rather sort of dreaming of.
1: Which takes us to this rather ungainly expression, (laughs) Can-zuck. Yes,
0: yes. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK. Basically, it's a British thing. And the currently kind of ruling... Wing of the Tory party are really into it, although they don't manage to do anything about it. But yeah, the idea behind that is sort of replace the EU for Britain with a kind of trade and sort of border policy and kind of immigration union with those three countries, which, of course, on various levels makes quite little sense. You know, why would it be more important to, you know, have sort of freedom of movement? with places literally on the other side of the planet rather than with places that are right next door like France and Belgium. But again, it sort of taps into these quite sort of atavistic beliefs in our sort of brothers and sisters over there. But also, I think there's a kind of belief that a lot of those countries, they're very neoliberal, like Britain. You know, they also have increasingly kind of, you know, weak uh, labor unions. Um, you know, they have a big kind of property sector. They have very little in the way of regulation. You know, they're all kind of like buccaneering capitalists kind of um, countries, which therefore are more our natural allies than countries that still have, you know, that still have things like nationalized railways and, you know, like, like France does, and, you know, still has a degree of kind of public regulation and oversight over over working conditions.
1: All right, so here is a, a reason to look at this now, this advent of Brexit and this, this sort of retrofitting of the the empire relationships at its outpost. So it behooves you, Owen, to then travel and, and, and taking these things firsthand, um, which took you to Melbourne, amongst other places.
0: It did, um, which <laughs> came off a lot better than a lot of other places.
1: Well, you, um, you you'd call it Shanghai from a distance, central Cardiff up
0: close. <laughs> I mean, I like Cardiff. So, you know, that's that's kind of a compliment. But yeah, I mean the, the really kind of interesting thing about this, there's a kind of initial thing where you're like, actually, you know, this is a kind of you know exciting modern multicultural city. It's not it's nothing like kind of provincial England at all, even though it looks in places like 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 bits of it. And then you notice certain similarities, one of which is the extreme level of suburbanization. Hmm. The kind of British politician that was most kind of enthusiastic for developing Australia and New Zealand was Joseph Chamberlain, who'd you know be a long been a long-term mayor of Birmingham, and you can really spot it, you know, a city like Birmingham where you have this kind of ultra-dense commercial core, and then the suburbia going on forever. That that especially in the antipodes that was just re- reproduced on a really big scale, and that sense that everything's kind of really really bunched together and then it just goes on flat for miles and miles and miles. Um was the thing that really struck me in in, in Melbourne.
1: Which which of course was I mean, one of the world's great boom cities in the late nineteenth century. I mean a city still of empire, but a city attempting to assert its own built presence at that at that moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and it's done to scale, especially in, in in the center. It's it's not kind of shy about kind of grandeur and maybe slight pomposity and 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 which is which is quite exciting you know and I I went to just before going to Auckland which I think is a city which very much lacks that sort of grandeur and scale and 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 suffers for it and you know I was also kind of interested and this is a thing I kind of found out more post facto by the fact that so many of those by the sort of importance of the of the building industry and of building workers in its history, partly in being one of the first places to have the eight-hour day, but also in the green bans in the, in, in the 70s, saving a lot of these kind of very grandiose Victorian buildings that in a lot of other colonial cities, like Hong Kong, for one, um, have just been demolished. Um, but they're still very much there. So you still have this kind of, you know, sense of the sort of 1880s and 1890s mm. and 1900s, this kind of height of empire moment, being very, very asserted in public space, which is slightly unnerving because it's just, you know, it's like kind of having Elgar, like, you know, blasted into your ears at all times a lot of the time.
1: <laughs> That's very apt. One of the other defining things about Melbourne is, is the idea of, of featurism, and we, we, and we hear at this point doff our caps to the great Robin Boyd, Uh, Yeah, who was was no fan of of the idea, but you you say featureism is something of a a feature of the
0: city of Melbourne. Absolutely, and I mean the thing with that, that, you know, that with the Australian ugliness that makes it such a great book is that combined love hate that runs through all of it. Like every time he's kind of writing about how much he hates featureism in Melbourne and so forth, there's always this kind of bit that's then dragging him to it which is, you know, it's (laughs) as a good Marxist, I would describe it as dialectical. You know, he's very much (laughs) constantly drawn in two two directions at once. Um, But just seeing how much that stuff's carried on, you know, a lot of architecture since the 80s, you know, it kind of carries on a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bells and whistles going on. Explain
1: explain the idea, because not everyone's familiar with the notion of, of featureism.
0: So I guess his idea is that, architecture in, in in Australia was always very kind of facile. It was always very much about appearances. So it wasn't really about sort of integrity or structure or space or materials. It was about kind of having a picture of a building. And the way that you have a kind of picture of a building is that you have all of these kind of stuck on bits that evoke something. And his idea is that this really is the way that you can kind of define all Australian architecture really is that it, it's about these sort of gobbons that evoke the empire, evoke classical architecture, and later on, when he's writing in the 50s and 60s, kind of evoke a sort of quite Californian idea of the modern. So I guess a kind, of, you know, kind of high modernism, like sort of brutalism or the international style or something. There's some examples in a city like Melbourne, mm. but they're really in the minority. They're kind of crushed between the Victorian era art deco on the one hand and the more kind of recent kind of jazzy architecture on the other side.
1: How, how do we explain... Particularly, where it becomes um, where it's manifest in residential architecture of that period, Victorian Australian residential architecture, the, wow. the terraces, the cast iron, that willful negation of space in a way in this sort of compact uh, form of residential building.
0: Yeah, I mean that's funny because that's the thing that just happens, you know, just before it goes sort of mega suburbia. That you have this, yeah, quite compact working class housing. But then the thing that it also does is, you know, it's got those kind of prefabricated screens and verandas all over it, which are made usually in Birmingham and the black country and then just shipped over to Australia. They're like completely prefabricated and just stuck on. So there's sort of gobons in their way. But unlike the other stuff, they're actually gobons that are useful. You know, they actually have a role in, you know, mm. um, actually trying to regulate the climate before the invention of air conditioning that does it um in a rather more effective but also more 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 wasteful way. <laughs> so it's a kind of weird paradox. On the one hand, like you're kind of like, oh, terraced houses, how weird. And then you sort of realize they're not quite like they are at home. And then obviously over time that you know gets replaced with the the sort of sprawling suburban villa.
1: Owen Hatherley is our guest Artificial Islands Adventures in the Dominions is the book and, oh, and before we leave Melbourne, I'd, I'd like to take you to Atherton Gardens, a, a public housing development in very close to the the central city. And, yeah. and this is a modernist space.
0: Yeah, so I was very very surprised to find that um, it wasn't in the guidebook I had, and there it was, you know, just right outside the centre. Um, There were a few things interesting there, one of which was the fact that it didn't have any features. It's like devoid of gobbons. So it must have been, you know, kind of architecturally quite a shock at the time. It's really, really straightforward, very stark, quite cheap modernism, really, just kind of like, you know, monolithic blocks. But also the fact that in a way that I didn't really, in a lot of them, it felt very much like a London space. It felt like... A kind of ordinary multicultural modernist space with lots of kind of public green space around it that people were using. And I was very much like, huh, this is something I did not expect. Um and I was quite interested to find out afterwards that there had been kind of various campaigns to have it like listed for its community value, despite the fact that it's this set of very, very monolithic concrete blocks. And you know, as as a fan of modernist architecture, I was quite kind of Um, heartened, that it seemed to have kind of um, bedded down a bit and been accepted. So where does the modernist project more broadly sit
1: uh, in places that were first built around the colonial project? What's the intersection of those two ideas?
0: I mean, uh, you know, in some ways, I suppose they're obviously part of uh, the, the same thing. But there's much more of a kind of you know that when modernism's kind of really spreading around the world after after 1945, a lot of post-colonial governments and a lot of governments in you know outside of, of Europe and North America get really really into it because it's seen as not having the colonial taint. So you know it's ma- one of its major centres at that point is Brazil, India, Japan. You know it really yeah, yeah. Um, is accepted as kind of like more neutral and more non-Western and more a thing where you just kind of deal with climate and space and so forth rather than with kind of ideology and and nationalism and you know robin boyd's around the time he's writing australian ugliness is writing constantly on japan and i think sees japan as a sort of model for australia as a country that would have a sort of confident modern architecture that would pull away from the 19th century And you don't see that much of it. I mean, there's a few public buildings, there's a lot of private houses. But in terms of, like, mass housing, you don't seem to see that much of it in Australia. So I was quite surprised to find this big dollop of it in the centre of town. Across the ditch we go
1: to Auckland. Uh, You you describe Auckland as the most unlivable, most livable
0: city. (laughs) Um, I, I felt very, uh, I got slightly guilty about all the stuff about Auckland. It comes off very, very badly in the book. And I suppose <laughs> the thing with that is the sort of England that I felt it had been emulating in the early 20th century. It was everything that I hate. <laughs> you know, that I, I, I grew up in Southampton on the south coast and, and moved to London at the age of 18 like, as soon as I possibly could. And that sort of sprawling Southern English kind of, suburbanism is really, really fulfilled in in, in Auckland. You know, it felt like Surrey, if you'd try to drop Surrey in paradise. And that was just kind of mortifying really. And, you know, you gradually find the things that, um, that, that make it kind of individual and interesting. But the first thing you spot is just this kind of horrible feeling of like, Oh my God! Someone built Guildford, and you know, in the in this beautiful, beautiful place, well, someone that's, just dropped this third-rate English city
1: there. The, the important part is that it is an exceptionally beautiful place, but there's no, mm. and, and this is, of course, the colonial mindset. Is that it is it is the denial of of the country. It is the denial of that natural geography. It is the, the subversion of that by this this colonial idea. And in Auckland is a. Well, is is a wonderful thing to conjure with if you were to listen or
0: see or feel the natural world. I mean, the thing that really struck me with that is the National Memorial, which is, you know, a kind of Portland stone little temple just plonked on top of one of the volcanoes. And the way they kind of put it in is so that it almost kind of nestles in so it can't actually be seen. Like it's sort of doing everything to, everything to draw attention away from the fact that you're sticking it on this incredibly steep and dramatic hill and instead trying to kind of hide it away as if it was somewhere it's sort of, you know, in the, in, in, in the depths of Worcestershire. And, you know, the, all the Portland stone from it is all imported from Dorset. And, you know, in front it's got a copy of Edward Lutyens' Cenotaph and everything about it is going like, we are not here, we are somewhere else. And that is kind of sad, really. I was going to say, there's a know, sadness
1: in that yearning, isn't there?
0: Well, and it's also, I think, very connected with the First World War, you know, yeah. the, the the kind of... Um, and the way that in the First World War, you know, people had been shipped from that part of the world to be massacred in the Dardanelles and in northern France and Belgium, and, you know, that, that they had sort of come back and... <laughs> the architectural must of resembles the sort of classical buildings you might design if you had shell shock.
1: The cut K- in Kanzuk is, of course, Canada. Um, describe Ottawa's Supreme Court.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it would be quite a nice building, but for so it's kind of quite nice little classical temple in a kind of Art Deco style, very much the sort of thing you might see in downtown Manhattan. And then it's got this gigantic, great big kind of mansard roof on top, which is there because Mackenzie King thought that everything should have a mansard roof on. It was kind of connected with his belief that Canadian culture was this like fusion of the Scottish and the French, the so-called Chateau Baronial style, um, which they had invented. And so therefore it needed to have this gigantic roof on it. So it's just got this, it's a you know, fairly decent American building that's wearing this ridiculous hat.
1: Montreal, <laughs> on the other hand, while well, we're well, in Canada, you, you say it, it sort of stands apart from the other cities you describe. It's uh, There's some exceptionalism about Montreal.
0: There's this constant kind of attempt, which I think goes further there than anywhere else I ended up writing about, of just pulling as far away from Britain as possible, which obviously comes from... You know, the fact of it, uh, I think, apart from possibly very briefly at the start of the 20th century, it never had an English-speaking majority. But it doesn't necessarily go towards France either. Mm. Um, So, you know, it it has this kind of, you know, historic centre that looks a bit like Aberdeen if it had French architects. And then you have around this, this incredibly elaborate, kind of multi-level concrete city of the 60s, which comes from the so-called Quiet Revolution, when I think kind of in public life in, 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 in Montreal and in Quebec more generally, they, they reject not only the kind of British influence, but also the influence of the Catholic Church and the influence of the kind of French elite. And going away from that, they kind of are pulled to the most radical currents in architecture at that point, which is sort of mega structural brutalism. So if you like that sort of thing, which I do, it's it's a great place to go. <laughs>
1: So, I, as a concluding thought, I'm, in a place like Australia, uh, and uh, Montreal is such an ex- interesting example of of perhaps how a, a city and a community see their way through these built problems, but I wonder if in, in a place like Australia, which is, is currently grappling with its colonial past in in all manner of ways, the importance of addressing that built environment in some way, I mean... We see a lot of statues come into question, but what about the yeah. bigger things? What what do we do with these buildings? Do we just see them in another way, or do we need to destroy them? I mean, what what's the appropriate impulse?
0: I mean, one of my favourite things anything ever, anyone ever said about buildings is um, something Deng Xiaoping said when he was asked about Mao's mausoleum, which had been built, you know, just before he came to power, and he said it was wrong to build it, and it would be wrong to demolish it. And I I suppose I feel that way about a lot of this stuff. I think much more of a kind of consciousness about how it came into being is good, um, you know, and what it represents, how it happened, you know, what it ignores, what it kind of leaves out is is important. But a lot of it's really good stuff. You know, it's not necessarily about condemnation, this is about understanding. And I think kind of... Conserving that kind of quite weird and twisted vision is is, is interesting. It helps you understand, you know, how, how you got to that place. But as a way to build in the present day, I think it's much more dangerous. I think that, you know, if that kind of tips into a kind of restorative nostalgia of, like, you know, let's always be like this, that's something much more worrying. But I don't think it necessarily should.
1: Oh, and thank you. What a, I, an extraordinary journey to to compile this this work. <laughs> <laughs> a, a great task on your part. Oh,
0: well, you know, it's acquired a, 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 a disgusting carbon footprint on that that I'm never going to be able to atone for.
1: Owen Hathaway is is guilt-laden. However, the, the book is uh, sumptuous and superb. It is called Artificial Islands, Adventures in the Dominions, and you'll find that in shops and libraries, and Owen is a, an architecture critic, uh, writer, and author. This is Blueprint. ABC RN.
0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.